Welcome to the Startup Wealth Podcast. I'm your host, Joyce Franklin. If you work at a startup or a company with a startup attitude, this podcast is for you. Each week, we talk to an expert guest about financial success and lessons learned on the journey to long-term security. Oracle, the giant multinational computer technology company, was founded in 1977 by Larry Ellison, Bob Miner, and Ed Oates. In 1981, my guest Roy Buckstein was hired as its chief financial officer, or CFO. But then, as the rapidly growing company approached its IPO in 1986, Buckstein was reassigned to the role of Oracle's tax director, in part because he was so young, only 31 years old. He left just two years later and started a CPA firm to help clients, including many of his former colleagues, understand what to do with all those stock options. Currently, Roy serves as CFO for two companies in the real estate space and a charitable foundation, both founded and operated by the family of the late Bob Miner. Roy thinks a lot about time and how we use it. Should we really work 60 hours a week at a startup or 80 hours? Should we be maximizing our time with friends and family instead? I interviewed Roy almost 10 years ago for my book, Life, Liquidity, and the Pursuit of Happiness. And he's here today to update us on what's changed in the tech world and in the last 10 years. Roy, welcome to Startup Wealth. Thank you, Joyce. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's the 40-year anniversary of you joining Oracle. If you could travel back in time to the early 80s, what advice would you have for the Roy of 40 years ago? When I joined Oracle, I was very inexperienced. I was well under 30 and in many respects didn't know how things were supposed to have been done. And by the very nature of Oracle, a startup in in the software uh, industry, a very um, new industry, there were things that we did out of necessity to survive that propelled or, or, or really uh, directed uh, me to pursue different avenues. Uh, but hindsight's a cruel judge. Um, there's not much. Uh, we were very fortunate. I think I would have been perhaps uh, tried to have been a little more active on the development side and to know exactly what was going on in uh, the development of the software so I could better uh, set expectations. Um, because Oracle in those days, software just didn't work so well out of the box. When we started Oracle, PCs didn't exist. I, we had to do things by hand in the beginning. So, so and I, I think many people who occupy positions uh, similar to mine today would be astounded. What do you mean that you didn't have something, uh, computers to keep your financial records? But uh, those were a different time. I think we were lucky. I think uh, generally speaking, uh, we were honest, and that's that. You know, honesty is the best policy. Try not to mislead others. Set expectations that you can achieve and exceed. That's a big part of it. So that you'll be on record as uh, being a responsible uh, business partner. The last time we talked, you said a real risk of working in the tech world was not spending five or ten or twenty thousand dollars to exercise pre-IPO shares. Do you remember what we were talking about when you said the real risk was something else? Oh, the time. Uh, one of the things now that I'm 
getting close to getting Social Security, is you recognize that your most scarce asset in, in life is not money or finances, but time. And, and, of course, the definition of wealth is good health and not what your uh, balance sheet might show. To maximize your wealth in a startup environment, which in those days it was stock options and, and, and for the most part. And you, uh, the tax strategy was to get to the promised land of long-term capital gains as soon as you could. And that meant taking a risk by exercising your options prior to their vesting, subject to repurchase by the company. Throughout today's show, you'll hear that sound a couple times. It means I'm adding some relevant context that did not come up in the original interview with Roy. The promised land he is referring to is the tax treatment on the sale of a capital asset, such as company stock or vested RSUs. Currently, capital gains are taxed at rates much lower than ordinary income, although the long-term promised land is different for various types of equity awards. For restricted stock, also known as RSUs, you reach long-term after holding them for one year. For employee stock purchase plan, also known as ESPP, and incentive stock options, you must hold them for at least two years from the date of grant and one year from the date of exercise to be taxed at long-term capital gain rates. Okay, now back to the interview. But the real risk isn't necessarily that money, but going to the company and spending four or five years, or if not more, in a company that's not going to go anywhere. So the risk isn't financial as much as it is, is time, because, again, uh, young people typically don't recognize that we're finite. And so it's the time you spend in a company, I think, that is the risk. And, you know, if you're young and maybe don't have a family, those are the years you can, you know, spend the eight hours a week or plus, do, as opposed to if you're older and have a family and, and have other time commitments and responsibilities. So, yes, uh, I remember that, that, that well. <laughs> so the parents of Jeff Bezos invested about 300000 in Amazon in the mid-1990s. Do you have a story that you can share that's similar about how you paid for your pre-IPO shares of Oracle? I mean, in those early days, you just had, you could buy stock. And Oracle was, there were just 10 of us. So the value of the company, and we hardly had any software revenue. The only people that really, I don't say, I shouldn't, it's not a correct to say they bought the software. The only people that licensed the software were just a couple customers. I uh, borrowed money. And I think on, a, on some stock options, I borrowed a little money from my father, and then later I paid him back with Oracle shares. So he did very well <laughs> when uh, I made a gift back to him for uh, paid him back the loan, and then gifted him some Oracle stock. So, um, um, and I immediately, when I exercised my stock and had held the uh, the prequisite period, uh, I set some si- a stock aside for my children's education, and and Oracle then continued to appreciate it after uh, public. So that that was a a technique that's pretty common. And uh, it was fortunate because that helped, that pretty much paid for their college education and, and you know, it was, uh, made life good for everyone. And if the check you have to write is just a couple thousand dollars, then maybe that's, if that's for you. Now, I, as I like to say, getting to the promised land of long-term capital gains is, uh, is not easy. But if you get to a company early enough when you get found, you know, you're granted founder stock where there's almost no very little value, I will tell you Larry Ellison never 
he probably paid for his shares. Maybe I, I have a, maybe a copy of the old ledger, his original stock. He might have put in $1,000 or not even. And today he's worth whatever. As of April 2021, Larry Ellison was listed by Bloomberg Billionaires Index as the ninth wealthiest person in the United States and as the 10th wealthiest in the world with a fortune of $93.9 billion. It's very common to do as you have done, work for a company and leave very soon after the IPO. What was your thought process for leaving Oracle just two years after their IPO? I was very young, and right before we went public, it was clear that I was maybe just over 30. Uh, it, it, it was a push for me to be the CFO, so we hired another person. Larry hired another person to be CFO, and they wanted me to be director of taxes, which that was my background before joining Oracle. I had a master's in tax. And I found out very soon as Oracle continued to grow that a big company was not for me. So, you know, some people make contributions and rise up the corporate ladder. I tend to work my way down. And I, I, was, I had more fun and it was more interesting for me as Oracle went public and achieved liquidity for so many of us. It was more interesting for me to help my friends at Oracle, the developers and things, people, to help them with their personal tax issues, whether it be philanthropy, and then just be their CPA. And so I started my own accounting firm, the nucleus of which were my Oracle friends, Larry, Bob Miner. Mark Benioff and others, and uh, I, I established this niche of stock options, and it didn't take me long to get a heck of a lot of clients from Cisco and you know uh, Netscape, because you know the brokerage community kind of knew that I had this niche and knew it well, and uh, it was fun, and I had a good time, and I might still be doing that today if uh, Bob had Bob Miner had not passed away at, at an early age many years ago. Bob Miner was the co-founder of Oracle. He died at age 52 from a rare form of lung cancer caused by asbestos exposure. And that propelled me into uh, uh, essentially selling my accounting firm after about six years and, and going to work for his wife, widow, who I, and that's what I've been doing for, uh, you know, the last 25 years, uh, helping uh, deal with financial tax, philanthropy issues and running a family office. So Roy, that's a big change going from working with many clients to working for one main client, one company. It was not an easy decision. I had my client base were some of the, some icons in Silicon Valley uh, when I had my accounting firm and they were all very intelligent. It was very much a challenge. I enjoyed them very much. They were uh, very smart people. A couple of them uh, engineers, they were challenged and, and became very, very knowledgeable about the tax rules and tax laws. Most gave up. They said, this makes no sense at all. And which was okay with me because then I, but, but yeah, it, it was, uh, and it's interesting when I thought about it and was making the decision, I probably wouldn't have made it had I not known the family. I probably would have kept my accounting firm, but I knew the family. And I was very, a cool, very close friend of Bob and his wife. And it was a, and I looked around, I was, as you can be very seduced in a, in a, in a startup, the, the job is you, you're the job, and you forget that you have another life, maybe a family, a wife, and maybe small children. That happened to me a bit at Oracle, and I said, well, I'm going to start an accounting firm, and I rolled right back into it. I was working all the time, but I loved it. And when Bob passed away, it just, it, 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 was, it was a wake-up call to me, and I knew that this, the job uh, of running this family office would not be all-encompassing 
Uh, it would be interesting. There'd be lots of issues, but it, w- it would be much more manageable. It, that made the decision much more palatable, easier, ha- knowing uh, the people that I was working with and having a, a personal in- involvement. And I was the right one to start, at least start with my bo- uh, Bob's wife and to see if we got along. And so far, so good <laughs> after 25 years. <laughs> You've been there a long time, right? Financially, uh, you know, it's been fine. I uh, I was very fortunate to have come in to uh, a situation where it, it, that wasn't the big motivator. But the quality of life for me has been exceptional because I have spent more time with – and now I have three grandchildren. So, yeah, we're taking things off my plate and we're having some outside consultants to, to do some of the things that I've been doing, which which makes it even more palatable. So I'm, I'm not sure when uh, – uh, uh, when, if uh, I'll be uh, retiring, and maybe it'll be like a not a balloon pop, but maybe a slow fizzle. But nonetheless, as long as I can still have my wits about me, um, I'm having a good time. And so it, it is. It has been a long time. And but most people in the family office area, you, unless they commit a crime or something, are are with the family that they're with. For you know, they don't. People don't move. Move. Uh, it's a very rare thing to see people moving around in that business. So going back to when you had the accounting firm and you were working for a lot of famous people, at least famous people now, I don't know how famous they were back then. Um, yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> any tips you have for people working with the up and coming superstars in the tech world? I remember one woman who did quite well and she just couldn't sign a check to the Internal Revenue Service. And I said, you know, I'll make the check out. You just have to sign it. You become a little bit of psychologist, a little bit of a teacher, and that can be very rewarding. A little bit of, of, of you know, sometimes uh, you get personal uh, with the people. As a tax advisor, Roy understood that his job is to think about what his clients want and to tailor his advice to help them get there. Uh, I often counseled and tried to maintain a lot of communication. Yeah, that's very important. I used to tell my clients, you know, maybe not this year, maybe not next year, but if you share with me what's going on in your head and keep me familiar with what you're doing and thinking, we'll hit a home run. We'll hit a three-run homer, maybe even a grand slam now and then. But you, we got to talk because if I don't know what's going on, you know, and I think those were the days before email, before you know, you could get your broker statements online. And I used to have big filing cabinets because I would be duped on all the broker statements from my clients. So I could see if we talked about something, I could later see if they really executed it. Did they exercise? Did they put the stock there? Did they take it from the right account? So you got to stay involved. You know, you got to be honest. No white lies. The white lies come back and bite you in the butt, even as inconsequential as you seem they may be. And, you know, you got to be re- you got to be able to and understand you can't tell clients what you think they want to hear if they're way off base. You've got to, you know, you got to warn them. You say, hey, you're that's getting close. You know, I, I, I uh, you know, I, I remember one. Client, we had to part ways because he wanted to set up these. He bought into this uh, uh, methodology that you could essentially create trust, and the trust could pay for your children's college education, and they wouldn't be taxed. You could avoid. And I said, that just doesn't work. And I found out five years later that he hired a special attorney to bring him back into the fold. He'd done, he'd done those things. I said, I can't be your accountant anymore. So you got to take the high road on these things. Um, 
And you've got to, sometimes you have to counsel clients away. You've got to fire them. And that can be tricky sometimes to fire a client. <laughs> when you were at Oracle in the early days, do you remember anything that happened in that realm where it may have been a little more gray and you helped them get to um, a place that you were comfortable and that was honest and above board? Yeah, you could say when I was Oracle as CFO, I know that there was there were one time in particular that where we split the stock and we had an offer letter out to an engineer. And before he came to work, the offer letter said X shares and he came to work after the, you know, post split. And I, I didn't even let Larry think about it. <laughs> he was going to give him post split shares, you know, the shares were I said, and, and he did. But, you know, some entrepreneurs live on the, you know, the, sometimes they cross the line. And by almost by necessity, and as I mentioned, one of the things I see today is software works so well out of the box. In those days, software didn't work so well out of the box. It would often, you'd have problems, and, and we had no backing, really, to any, um, any kind of cushion, which made my job much harder to pay the bills on a timely basis. Interest rates were Carter administration. They were 12, 13%. Try to get somebody to pay their bill when interest rates are 12 to 13%. That is a hard thing to do. People want to hold their money. So, you know, we, I sometimes had to tell them, Hey guys, I'm, I I gotta, you gotta wait for me, but I I never missed a payroll. Uh, And then as an accountant for people, they, you know, people would sometimes come in. Oh, I want to move. I want to move to Nevada. And I said, well, here's what you got to do. Nevada is one of a handful of states, including Florida and Texas, without a state income tax. If you work in California or another state with an income tax to build your business, then sell your company or company stock and immediately move to Nevada, you still have to pay California's taxes on any income you earned in California. You can't pretend you live in Nevada. You know, you you, you got to move. You got to actually move there. You got to uh, to to be taxed or to avoid California tax. And the franchise tax board isn't stupid. They're going to watch you. You know, I suspect Larry Ellison, who says he's moved to Hawaii, they might have a tracker on him to see how many days he does spend in California. So so those those issues to explain to people what they might have heard. That oh, it's easy to do, but in practice, and to uh, to actually do those things were a little more involved than what they might have uh, expected. It just depends upon the issue, and and they would come up, and you you got to uh, tell it to them straight what the what the downside are going to be, and you know this playing the tax lottery game makes no sense, in my opinion. You you understand the issue, you build the case, and you document it then, not not three years later when maybe the IRS comes calling. So I get um, this question all the time from clients and prospective clients. They say, I am a W-2 employee. I pay so much in taxes. What can I do to reduce my tax burden? Yeah, especially in states where they're starting to take away your home ownership tax minimizations, the interest deduction, income tax, property tax. The $10,000 limit on income tax deduction. Be sure you pick up the pennies, the nickels and quarters, because they can add up. If you're not participating in a company's 401k plan where they're contributing, shame on you. If you have children and not uh, for the child care thing, shame on you. 
The child care thing Roy is advocating here is a dependent care flexible spending account. It's a company benefit that allows employees to put pre-tax dollars into an account to be spent to pay for child care expenses such as preschool, daycare, and even a nanny. Roy's son works at a tech company that offers a handful of employee benefit plans. Uh, I told my son, I will loan you the money to participate in your 423 plan. Those things are almost just about as guaranteed as anything to, to, so don't forget, you know, things can add up. And here, Roy is referring to the Employee Stock Purchase Plan, or ESPP, under Section 423 of the Internal Revenue Code. It's a benefit available at many companies that have issued publicly traded stock. Here's how an ESPP plan works. You purchase company stock at a discount from the stock's fair market value. Usually, the discount allows you to buy the stock at 85% of the fair market value. The 15% discount the difference between the price you paid and the fair market value will be included in your W-2. A common mistake many people make when they report the sale of ESPP shares on their tax return is forgetting to add the amount that was included in their W-2 to the amount they paid for the stock. I generally recommend participating in the ESPP plan and immediately selling the shares when you receive them. Although any gain will be taxed at the higher short-term rates, you'll realize the 15% discount regardless of what the stock price does down the line. Plus, if the share price drops in the future and you continue to participate in the ESPP plan, you'll buy more shares at lower prices. If you want to read about how to navigate your ESPP plan, visit jlfwealth.com. That's a hell of a deal. I mean, even if you just sold it immediately, you're guaranteed a 15% return. So don't forget, there. If, if you get dismayed that there are all sorts of, there are no big things around there, look for the little things, and they can add up. What generates wealth is taking a risk and going to a startup. There are no certainties in life, and uh, you have to be careful. You have to, uh, in my day, when people had highly appreciated ISOs, there's planning you had to do. There were some models you had to do to manage cash flow because of alternative minimum tax implications. And your accountant is going to, you're going to spend more time with your accountant to make sure you don't step in a hole or step in something else. Um, and uh, you need to be careful. But um, wealth creation is taking risks. And, you know, it's okay if you don't want to take a risk. But then you need to change your expectations. Uh, I think if people stand back and think, and you might not like to hear this, but we get a lot for our money, for the taxes we pay. There's been no time in in the history of, of, of the species where we've had a system that pretty much, better than any other, that guarantees, there are no guarantees, but uh, it's a high probability you're going to get to keep a good portion of what you accumulate as opposed to having a king or a government take it away from you and throw you out, Um, which if you look at the history of our species, that happens. And so, you know, I think people often, we complain about taxes and no one wants to pay more, but I think we need to turn around and look back and say, what do we get for it? And, you know, I think we get a fair amount. I think we we have a pretty good deal. Uh, it could be better, and we could have less less um, uh, inefficiencies in our government. The government's a big organization, and, and we all know that the bigger the organization gets, perhaps it gets less efficient. But. When we spoke before, you said you didn't like debt. 
and that you don't have a mortgage on your home. Do you think people should follow your lead? This is something that's personal. I mean, I just don't like the way it feels. Now, uh, I just like the way it made me feel not to have on my balance sheet debt. Uh, I suspect the majority of, of people, you know, don't mind debt. But just it was just it's a personal thing, and I was I put I was able to put myself in a position not to have any debt. I take a different position from Roy on this issue. I recommend holding a mortgage as a wealth-creating move if you're in a medium to high tax bracket. Instead of paying cash to buy your home, take out a mortgage so you can invest that cash in a diversified portfolio. Since the mortgage interest deduction is a tax benefit if you itemize, there's an arbitrage opportunity. For someone in the highest federal and state tax bracket, your marginal tax rate is about 50%. So if your mortgage interest rate is 4%, then your after-tax cost is about 2%. Currently, interest on a mortgage of up to $750,000 is deductible for a home purchased today. Real estate generally increases over time. Paying down your loan does not make you richer, while diverting those dollars not paid towards principal into your investment portfolio is expected to increase your wealth over time. For a more aggressive move, take out an interest-only loan where you never pay down principal. An interest-only loan can be a great choice if you aren't debt-averse, have a medium to high risk tolerance, you will invest the difference, and you can afford the risk of future interest rate increases. Debt is one way of, of creating wealth. But I think it's not going to create the kind of wealth that you can get for a big liquid, liquidation event when you've joined a private company, either as a founder, near founder, and then you have the liquidation event and have the what I call the oomph of an IPO or the oomph of being bought at a, a very nice multiple. That will, I think, trump what kind of uh, wealth creation that you can use uh, with debt for most people, for most people. So knowing all these superstars in the tech world, Larry Ellison, Mark Benioff, etc., do you have any advice for someone who is going to either partner with someone starting a company or is going to work for one? How can you tell where someone is just filled with hubris versus someone who is confident and on their way to success? I think the important thing is to recognize it is highly likely that you're probably going to have to pivot and you need to be with someone who is not so one-sided or so enamored with something, a technology, a way of doing things that they won't be able to pivot. Okay. You want to find somebody that's, this is aging me. They're used to when I was a little boy, we had these blow up clowns that had sand in the bottom and you would knock them over and they would come right back because of the sand in the bottom. And that is a, is a personality trait that you want to have somebody to have. As soon as somebody says no and close the door, they're knocking back on the door. You have to have that kind of energy and motivation and desire. Okay. It's nice to be smart, but I think, the ability to recognize when you need to pivot, which is very hard, and that come back always there, energy, is is very, very important. Larry has been criticized for not moving into the cloud class fast enough. Well, it would have been easy if you know if he'd been Mark Benioff, who didn't have that base 
uh, client server environment that where all his revenue was coming from. Mark Benioff started in, in the cloud. So we'll see if Mark Benioff can make the next transition to whatever it's going to be. So I, I tip, you got to tip your hat to him because it's quite unbelievable in my opinion. And there's many, many examples of companies that had to pivot even from their underlying to even to get up out of the box to get to be a public company. They had to pivot. And I think that that's uh, uh, and an energy um, being smart is good, but that's a lot of smart people. <laughs> that's great. I love the analogy to the clown. So we want to guide people through different stages of their financial journey. And I'd like to talk to you about my graphic, the four phases of startup life. Do you have that handy? Yes, I do. You can find a copy of the graphic Roy is looking at by going to jlfwealth.com. It was created from interviews with over 65 people. Phase one could last two to 40 years. This is where you're laying the foundation for your company. Phase two happens pre-liquidity event. This is where you're ramping up and it usually lasts zero to 24 months. Then there's the liquidity event, which could be an IPO, acquisition, or a merger. Phase three is realizing the dream, and it lasts up to 24 months. And phase four is the what's next phase, and it lasts for two to 40 years. Roy, you previously said that phase one was the hardest for you. Do you remember why that was the hardest part of your journey as a tech CFO? I think it was hard because there was no real pattern for us to follow. Uh, Today, I think Many of the, um, what do you call the billionaire, what do you call the companies that are billion, um, what are the terms they use when you're a billion dollar valuation? Unicorns? Yeah, yeah, unicorn. But there there were no, they they have a a path. They've seen other companies and there's kind of a, a, everybody's unique, but there's a, a more of a, here's how you do it. We had no idea. You know, we did it by the seat of our pants because there was no, somebody for us to follow. So there's no, nothing you can read about how somebody else did it and then try to maybe follow that path. So that, that was, that was hard. And I was, I was, I wasn't 30. I didn't, is this the way we're, you're supposed to do it? I don't know, but I think I got to go this way because I got to make payroll, you know, in a couple days or a couple weeks or whatever it was, or I got to, I'm thinking about this. How am I going to, how am I going to set up, you know, the way to allow people to work at home under leased lines, you know, and, God, everybody can't have a PC because they were so darn expensive. Looking at the four phases chart, what's the dumbest thing you've seen someone do in any of the phases? One, when you're in phase one, you need good, loyal people. And you need to, if somebody is incompetent, you need to weed them out quickly. And you need to also, at the same time, instill loyalty. Turnover will kill you. When I was uh, my accountant, every once in a while I find a company that did not allow its empo- the stock option plan did not allow its employees to exercise subject to repurchase, and I would often go to the CFO and say, "Look, you need to put that in the provision, in my opinion, your stock because this is a benefit to the employee." And they would point out, "Well, it's, it can be and can be a negative to the company later on." And I said, "Yeah, but these are employee benefit plans, not employee detriment plans. So you want to really in the early stages, you got to keep that team together." That's the that that's that's the stupidest thing you can do to be hard assed um, and not 
recognize that you need them and figuring out how you can best compensate people. And often it's not necessarily uh, a salary and, and, and how you need to keep people. Uh, and you, you need to count at the same time, if somebody's in there that's not doing it, you need to get them straightened out fast because no one can hide in a small company. Big companies, you can hide. People can hide. And just like, you know, the government, you've know, you got people that aren't efficient. I think that's the, the, the perhaps the biggest mistake. Uh, uh, you, I guess the next biggest mistake is, you know, you got to buy in. Are you going to, uh, in the early stages, are you going to raise capital just in time? If you raise capital just in time, everybody's going to benefit, and the venture capital community won't benefit as much. You'll benefit, and your employees will benefit. But at the same time, there's a risk to that. And it's, you know, if, if you want more certainty and raise more money than you need over a period of time, you're going to give up more equity. We didn't have that problem because Larry never wanted to, 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 to borrow money. You know, or, you know, he just did not like VCs and always felt like that they were undervaluing the company. But so we never did a deal with VC. Whenever we got close, it was sayonara because we were so far apart. Made my job perhaps more challenging, but, but recognizing where you are, are on that and understanding the risk. And it, I guess it's okay to raise a lot of money, but you just – the owners – you know, um, the owners become perhaps less of the um, true owner and founder and more of an employee. You know, you got to be careful. You got to watch you know, if you're going to lose control. Well, this has been so great. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and experience. <laughs> it, well, it's experience. And I have, I have a number of cells in my spreadsheet of life. And, um, you know, once you, I, t- I counsel my children. I say, you can't score a run unless you get out of the dugout. And just remember, every, the best batters in the world fail two out of three times. The best batter is about 333, so they, they failed two out of three times. But for God's sakes, when the ball goes over the fence on those rare, rare occasions, don't let anyone know by your facial expression as you're rounding the bases that it was an accident. Thanks for listening to Startup Wealth. Today's show was produced by Eric Johnson from lightningpod.fm. Original theme music by Philip Reynolds Price. To learn more about J.L. Franklin Wealth Planning and how we can help you protect your wealth, mitigate taxes, care for your family, and pursue your dreams, visit jlfwealth.com. We are a growing firm. If you are an experienced advisor who subscribes to our approach and wants to grow with us, please get in touch. If you like the show and want more, please rate and review Startup Wealth in your favorite podcast app. This podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and should not be construed as specific investment, legal, tax, or financial planning advice. Please consult with your professional advisor before taking any action based on the content discussed.